7. All right, if you have your Bibles, open them up to, uh, where are we at? Oh, Daniel, yeah. Daniel chapter 10. Daniel chapter 10. So Daniel chapter 10, I'll tell you, it's, it's like there has been so much fire in Daniel, and we have been like roller coastering our way through Daniel. Last week was just so much going on. Um, I listened to my dad's message from Daniel chapter 10 this week, preparing for this, and it says on his messages, Daniel chapter 10, part 1, and then Daniel chapter 10, part 2. And so I started Daniel 10, Daniel 10, part 1, and he's like, okay, we're in Daniel 10 tonight, but I want to go over some parts of 9 because there's some things in there I want to cover. And then he spent the whole message talking about Daniel 9, and the last five minutes he read a couple verses in 10. And so I'm like, okay, well, part 2 then is obviously chapter 10, and it was like he just wanted to go back and be in nine. But uh, we're moving on. We're not going to do that tonight. So just let me tell you, chapter 10, 11, and 12 go together. 10 is going to set up 11 and 12. We get some of the most important and, and, and moving forward in the book of Daniel prophecies in 11 and 12, prophecies of future times of Antichrist. And so 10 is a setup to 11. There are some, there's some meat because it's God's, God's word all the way through. But when we get next week to chapter 11, we're going to probably spend two, at least two weeks in chapter, chapter 11. It'll take us to get through 11. I'm not going to try to tackle it in one week. And then the same thing with 12. So we'll probably be four weeks after tonight in 11 and 12. And then um, we'll be done with Daniel and we'll move on from there. I think to Nehemiah is where we're going next on Wednesday nights. Um, Revelation 7 on Sunday morning. So um, all you ladies will be gone, but you'll miss it. You have to check it out online. Um, all right, hey, I want to remind us, so it says here in verse 1, in the third year of, of Cyrus, king of Persia, Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, whose name was called Belteshazzar. That was his Hebrew name that they gave him. The message was true, but the appointed time was long. You guys have little margins in your Bible there that, 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 that tell you things about verses? Okay, what does it say about Daniel chapter 1, verse 1, or 10, 1 in your margin? There should be a little comment there that says, of great conflict. So actually the, the Hebrew there reads much better than uh, was long. It's a, it's a message of great conflict. Or what I'm going to tell you, it involves great conflict. So the things that Daniel, that you know, kind of spoiler alert, as we get into chapter 11 and chapter 12, Daniel is going to be giving us some really key details about the Antichrist and about this future ruler who's coming um, when the tribulation begins of the book of Revelation and this new world leader that, that rises on the scene in the Bible, the Antichrist. 33 different names, not mentions, way more mentions, but 33 different names of the Antichrist in the Old Testament, like 12 in the New Testament. Um, so this, this, this character of the Antichrist is, is highly covered in the Bible. And so... Um, we, we just have tons of information because it's covered all over the place and we're going to get to that. And so these events are of a very troublesome time. And we know, and as you've been here on Sunday mornings, we've been studying Revelation, we're seeing um, terrible, ominous things that as the, the, the first four horsemen of the apocalypse ride and the rest of the um, seal judgments are being loosed. Now, again, I want you to be able to put your Bible into a, a pretty time frame perspective. And it gets difficult because it's, but, you know, going from Genesis to Revelation, our Bibles are not necessarily laid out chronologically, right? They say that Job is the oldest book, written book in our Bibles. So Job was the first penned book in human history before Moses wrote um, the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses. But where we are, 
um, in, the, in the timeline of Israel's history here in the book of Daniel, this Babylonian captivity, it's about 500. Right here in the second year of King, King Darius is the year 538. So it's about 538. You know, we're counting the wrong way, right? Going uh, B.C., A.D. And so we're 500 years before Christ, roughly. But this is the time. Now, if you go back in your Bible, like this far, you'll come to Nehemiah, Ezra, and what you'll find is that Nehemiah, Ezra, and Esther are post-exilic books, we call them. They're post-exile, post the 70 years. So they actually, they fit chronologically in your Bible after Daniel. Everybody thoroughly confused? No? Pretty, pretty good? Okay. So Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, chronologically, they fit, like where we find Nehemiah, when Nehemiah in chapter 2, when Artaxerxes gives the command that we studied last week, that was what, do we remember what year that was? And nobody wrote it down in your margins? Come on. I'm going to go back. Forget 10. Let's go to 9. Let me bring your attention to chapter 9 where we find out that March 14th, 445 B.C. Everybody, March 14th, 445 B.C. That's the day that Artaxerxes gave his commandment to go forth. From that day we count and we get 173,880 days. Brings us to the, the what? Guys, what did we do for the last month? Thank you. You are the savior of this group. That's where Jesus rides on a donkey, the triumphal entry, the, the name of the Messiah, right? We studied that. Now it's coming back. Okay, now you're like, oh, yeah, okay, we're getting it. So that's that. So anyways, all right, so time frame. We're in the exile, 70 years. Daniel's going to die here. Daniel is, um, and then after this, we get to Ezra. Ezra, Cyrus is going to give a decree. Remember, there was four decrees. We keyed on one last week because that was the decree that God said from that decree going forth, you would mark the, the 490 years um, times 360 days. That comes to your 173,880 days, which brings you to April 6, 32 A.D., the exact day that Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey, marking the coming of Messiah. That's the, the big prophecy we studied last week in Daniel 9. And why, again, why it's so important and we spend so much time on it. Now, as we get to, to 10, we see Cyrus. We're moving on. Nebuchadnezzar's gone. The, the head of gold the arms and chest of silver, and now we're into the Medo-Persian Empire. And there was a decree that was marked in, in chapter 9 that marked the beginning of that. But I remember it was one of four decrees. So Cyrus gave the first decree to Ezra. And then under in your Bibles in Ezra, there's a character named Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel was the first one who led um, the people that were in captivity. Hundreds of thousands were brought out of Israel into Babylon where they lived for 70 years. And then, and then under um, Zerubbabel was the first wave. And he went back and they began to rebuild the, the ruins that were in Jerusalem. And then Ezra and the temple. And, and, and then Ezra went back because the spiritual condition of Israel was very bad. There was, they, weren't, they weren't going to church. They weren't worshiping the Lord. They were still kind of in their Babylonian minds. And, and things were really rough in Israel. And so God raises up again Ezra. And that's what the book of Ezra is about. And Ezra goes back. And then he starts working on the spiritual warfare of the welfare of the nation of Israel. Again, post-exilic. Books And then Haggai is also a post-exilic prophet. We'll get to him. He's later in the Bible, but he's a post-exilic prophet who's going to prophesy over this time. Jeremiah um, is contemporary with Daniel. So Jeremiah was, or, or just before, because Daniel was reading things out of Jeremiah, and Jeremiah was prophesying about um, the things that Daniel, and that's how Daniel knew there was going to be 70 years because he was reading Jeremiah's prophecies. All right. Did I take as Jesus is coming soon? You don't even have to know all this stuff. Jesus is coming. Just lift your eyes, your head. Just lift your eyes. Redemption draws nigh. Um, so 
in verse 2 it says, um, And in those days I, Daniel, was mourning. Everybody say, aww. Daniel was sad. He was mourning again because of the condition of Israel and because his brothers. And um, for whatever reason, um, I don't know how they know this stuff. I just heard like, I read it, so somebody knows it. I don't know how they know it, but 40 to 45,000 Jews only had returned to, to Israel from Babylon. And part of the problem was that they had been in Babylon and the, you know, the Babylonians weren't, it wasn't like when they were in Egypt. You know, when they were in Egypt, they were slaves and they were, it was terrible. The conditions were bad and um, but in Babylon, they, they let the Jews assimilate to Babylonian culture. They built houses there. They were able to start businesses there. They, they had built life, and, and God told them to do that. So Daniel gave them instruction when they first got there, because that was in the Word of God as well. When you get there, the idea is occupy till I come, right? The same condition that you and I are in now, waiting for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, we're waiting for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, but in the meantime, there's work that has to be done. So we don't, we don't unfortunately get to go charge our credit cards and live life loosely because Jesus is coming back anyways and not somebody else going to be stuck with a bill. and um, It'll work out, right? We'll leave all our stuff. We can have our cars, our houses. They'll pay back the credit cards or whatever we do. But now you can't, you don't, we don't get that option. We have to occupy. There's work to get done. When Jesus went up into heaven, he ascended in Acts chapter 2, the, the angels stood there and they said to the disciples, why do you stand gazing into heaven? This same Jesus who went up will come back again. And in the meantime, there's work to be done. And so, in Babylon, they, they made houses. They, they, they had business. They didn't want to go back. And Daniel is broken up. And those that were back, things were in disarray in Israel. And they weren't going to church. And they weren't, the, the worship of the Lord, the house of the Lord was, was falling down. And, and, and the Lord is prophesying. In Haggai, um, we, we see these prophecies. You guys can read ahead on some of this stuff. But um, Haggai is a really short book in the Minor Prophets. But it, he says, um, is it time for you yourselves to dwell? And this is about where we are post-exilic. And so the whole idea of, of Haggai, it was designed to stir up the nations to finish the temple. And so Haggai is this prophet who's prophesying in Israel post-exile. Um, and again, just one more kind of little history note is that when Daniel was still alive and where this stuff is happening, and when Ezra and, and Zerubbabel, when they began to go back, 538, but it wasn't for another almost 80 years when Nehemiah went back in, and, and was there in, four, or in 445 B.C. So it was almost 80 years later before Nehemiah goes back. So people were in, back in the land for a while. It is, it, and it's what Haggai is saying. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in the place, in, in your paneled houses, and this temple to lie in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Listen to this. This is applicable for us today, too. I use this one analogy all the time in Titus. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but you do not have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put it in a bag with holes in it. And this was the condition of the people of Israel. God wasn't blessing the things that they were doing. You know? Um, and oftentimes we do that. We, we earn money. You ever do that? You earn money and it feels like you're putting in a bag with holes in it? Maybe part of the problem is, is, is your priority or, or that, that you're not investing first in God's kingdom or with God. And as God, you know, because God, God I should be careful. God not or doesn't want to or he, he can't bless disobedience. And, and if we're being disobedient, he's not going to bless it. We're putting it in a bag with holes in it. You know, and so as, as we, we invest first in God's kingdom and we, we give him of the first fruits and we say we trust you, we love you, and then um, God can bless the rest. And that's what happened. You know, you're building houses and, you know, putting these 
$10,000 refrigerators that have computers on the front of them and in your house and your kids open them up and there's no food in them and you know, you're buying them all these fancy clothes and it's not bringing them any joy and they're still struggling at school even though you put them in the fanciest, you know, Nike outfits and Gucci, you know, sweatsuits to, and they're stinking up the place. And there's all these luxuries, this is saying, that, that, that you're investing your life in, but there's no value in it. There's no value in it. And God says you're putting it in bags with holes in it. You know, can you imagine like, I don't know, going to the bank and getting away with the loot, but as you're running away, your bag's got holes in it and all your loot's falling out all over the... No good, man. I remember when uh, we first... <laughs> he do it anyway. I remember when we, uh, we first had to start wearing masks in stores and I walk into a 7-Eleven or something, I tell the lady, hey, this is the first time I ever walked into a store with a mask on and left with, more, with more, less money than I came in with. <laughs> uh, that was partially true, by the way. Uh, So Daniel's mourning. He's mourning over the condition for, for four, three full weeks. And verse 3, I ate no pleasant food, no meat, no wine came into my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all till three whole weeks were fulfilled. What, what is one of the staples of Daniel's life that we just read in verse 3? It's in verse 3. We saw it in chapter 1. It was a staple. It was a staple of Daniel's strength in chapter 1. We see it here in chapter 3 called a fast, right? Daniel is fasting here in, in this chapter. And so, um, you know, again, fasting is biblical. We find fasting in the Old Testament. It's consistent. We find it in the New Testament. It's not one of those things where it's one obscure verse in the Old Testament or the New Testament that we've tried to make this doctrine out of. It's consistent all the way through it. King David fasted. Moses fasted. Esther fasted. Nehemiah fasted. On and on in the Old Testament. The characters of the New Testament fasted. Um, through, through the, the, the pages of the book of Acts, the, the apostles didn't fast while Jesus was alive, but they weren't supposed to. You know, Jesus addressed that with the Pharisees. The Pharisees, when they approached that day and they asked the question, they said, we fast often. The Pharisees even understood that fasting is a biblical um, principle that God has laid out. I don't know how well we, um, as a church, were using it. Um, I always encourage it. It never should be... Um, Again, anything that we should do, we, we do for God can't be out of obligation. It can't be out of constraint. And so if you think you do it because you have to do it or because, because you earn points with God, then there's no value in it anyways. But when it's, when, it's, when it's relational and when you offer it unto the Lord, anytime you deny your flesh of something, you feed your spirit. It's always good. Deny your flesh of something and when you, when you fast. And then what's, what I think is so cool about fasting is that fasting – now, all the medical journals have caught up like years later, and these are not new medical journals, but they're talking about the, the absolute benefits of, of fasting for your health. One of the healthiest things you can do for yourself, and, and the one that I read, it was, what was the prescription was twice a year, a three-day only water fast twice a year, every six months. Three days water only, heart disease, cancer, on and on and on and on and on, all better for you um, for a, a three-day fast twice a year. And so I'm like, well, Jesus said that, you know, the Bible said that thousands of years ago. Daniel understood that. But you know, what's cool here is, and there's a book too, if you want to do some research on, on fasting, or if it's something that you want to, you know, you know, and we need to, you guys, we need to, in our Christian life, incorporate fasting in our Christian walk. It's super important. And, and again, encourage that for you to seek the Lord for that. Let God put it on your heart. And again, don't do it because you have to, or because you're going to check a box with God. It don't work that way. 
but it, it will help you in your spiritual growth. It'll help you to get deeper in your relationship with God. It'll help. It brings wisdom. Revelation comes through um, fasting and the intimacy that's there. But what's cool is that Daniel didn't do a water-only fast. When I think of fasting, I often immediately go to Moses and Jesus because they both did these long, extended, water-only fasts. But Daniel, Daniel in, in either place, in, in chapter 1, nor in here. But there's a book that's called Awakening by Stovall Weems. It's one of the best Christian books I've read on the subject of fasting um, because he goes through all the medical stuff. Different people have medical issues and reasons why they can, certain things they can fast. And basically what he does is he talks about um, three different choices. We've done them here too. So he challenges a 21-day fast in there. Our men's group has done it a couple times in our church, and it's, it's always been a lot of fruit out of it. And, and what we do is we, in ours, and again, you can modify it however you want. But again, when you deny your flesh, you'll feed your spirit. But we, we, we did um, water-only days, juice-only days, and then fruits and, fruits and vegetables days. So you do a mix of those three over the 21 days. And, and so, and that's what's taught in the book. And he lays it out how to do it, what those things are. He talks about being in the zone on an extended fast where you, you know, you don't get out of the zone. You can eat, you can eat things, you can, you know, because if you, if you want to like have a day, you want to seek God, something's going on in your life. You know, the interesting thing is about fasting in the Old Testament is it was oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes related to mourning. Here Daniel is mourning. And not only is he mourning though, he wants to seek God for an answer. So for wisdom, and that's kind of how I've used fasting is like, when I really need an answer from God, when I really need a connection with the Lord, then I've used fasting to try to get, you know, some wisdom and, and, and hear an answer, a big thing in my life, like moving to Utah. I fasted before and prayed before we decided to move to Utah over that decision. Um, you know, other things where, you know, just have, have fasted. When I was in Bible college, I challenged myself to a 40-day fast. I was going to fast for 40 days. I'm so spiritual. I never made it. I tried three times. I, but but I'm, I'm kidding because I did challenge myself to a 40-day fast, but I wanted to accomplish it in one year. And so I gave myself in one calendar year, I want to fast 40 days. And I had a really easy plan to do it. You guys could all do it. The first, no matter how it fell, the first Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday of every month. And so I, and I did. I fasted every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday of the, of the month. So whatever it was. And then if you do that, that gives you 36 days, and then you have to make four days throughout the year. I did 38. I did a couple. I never made up to all four of those. I never made it to 40. It probably become a pride issue or something. God didn't let me do it. But I did have some, some where I would do the first three days um, of the month and did that for a couple years, and it was a good discipline. And now, obviously, I'm not fasting anymore like I should be or as often as I need to be, and I don't fast too much anymore. Um, I ran, though. I did run the other day as far as the, the longest run I've had in, in a while. Yeah, I was in the kitchen. And I had to go to the bathroom really bad. <laughs> I ran like, woo yeah, I made it all the way there. <laughs> I had to stop at the door and breathe a few times. But, no, I wish. I wish I could run. I ran. Before I was a, one of the things I did, I, I, always, tease, I always tease my father-in-law because I worked for him for 15 years before I got here. And I had, a, I had a second job, a second career, actually. And I said, yeah, he never paid me enough. I had to work two jobs the whole time I worked for him. But I, honestly, I just did it because I loved it, and it was, it was just good. But I was a basketball official for 17 years, and I refereed high school and college basketball. And I was kind of moving my way up the ranks and um, was getting ready to break into Division two in college. And, and then God called me to Utah in 2013, and my officiating career ended. And, you know, where I lived in Southern California, I was, I was doing NAIA 
JC, um, JUCO, and um, Division Three, and there was 40 colleges within a two and a half hour, three hour drive of my house that I could that of colleges that fit that spectrum. When I got to Utah, there was one, and but there's more there's more Division One colleges here than any place I've ever lived in my life. We had you know, so many Division One schools here, but and then in high school, there was just no more, nothing else to go. So, anyways, God moved this way, I stopped. But I was running all the time, all year. I had to stay in shape because I was running. And then from 2013, I stopped basketball officiating, and it's a lot to make an excuse about this belly open. <laughs> That's my excuse, though. I stopped running, and life hit. And since then, I haven't run, nor do I like to hike very much when I'm hi- when I'm hunting. I like road hunting, though. That's fun. All right, what are we talking about? Let's go. Um, so Daniel ate no pleasant food. I'm encouraging us to, as a church to fast. Daniel fast, uh, awakening, write that down. Snowball Williams, if you want some information. But just, you know, just fast. Pick a day. Pick a time and fast. Make it a, make it a juice-only day. Make it a, a veg, fruit and vegetables. And, and the idea when you fast in those kind of things is, is what we call stay in the zone. Everybody say the zone. That means that you still have some discomfort. You don't quite fully get full. You can eat a little bit for nutrition. Because the thing is, if you... If you pick a day to fast and then you're just so miserable that, you know, you just get in your car and drive as fast as you can to McDonald's and order four Big Macs, you know, because I've done that before, you know, where I just like, I just gorge because I'm like, you know, a couple of Wednesday nights in those Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday fasts I was doing. By the time I got to Wednesday night late, I'm like, okay, Wednesday's over. It's good enough. And I'd eat late night and too, way too much. And yeah, you know, so it, before you get to that point, go eat some crackers, you know, have an apple, eat a banana. You know, it's, it's, it, God, God's not judging us on whether we ate a banana or an apple on our fast or whether we, we did something. But if we stay in that zone, and then again, what the, the simple idea of it, and I'm not teaching fasting tonight because it could take in a whole hour, but the simple idea is that instead of the times that you would spend um, preparing and eating meals, you spend those times in the Word of God and praying. Because if all you fast is food, then at the end of a fast, all you're going to be is hungry. You're not going to be any more spiritually... Um, mature, or grown, or, or successful if you don't replace the food aspect with spiritual faith. And so you, the idea is that, you know, you, you, instead of a half hour for lunch, you go in your bedroom, you close the door when nobody knows where you are, and you open your Bible, and you pray and pray and and, um, and read for, for 30 minutes. You know, when 3 o'clock, when your stomach starts to growl, you, you say a prayer. It reminds you to pray. It reminds you to seek the Lord. That's kind of how it works. So Daniel was, again... A fast. He did 21 days of this Daniel fast. And you guys heard the term Daniel fast before? You saw sometimes thrown around. Um, and that, that's where it comes from. So he tells you what his, his plan was here. In verse 4, he says, Now on the 24th day of the first month, as I was by the wayside of the great river, that is the Tigris. Now it's, it's fascinating because Daniel is like 90 years old in this scene. And, and he's sad because his, his countrymen won't go back to, to Jerusalem, they won't go back to Israel. And some have said, well, what about Daniel? Why didn't he go back then? He was still in Babylon. Yes, he was, but he's 90 years old. And he was serving the Lord, and he was working for the king of the, the most powerful person in the world at the time, King Cyrus. And Daniel was on his staff, and he was his number one trusted advisor, and he had a mission and a plan. And he's 90 years old. I mean, you know, I've been telling you guys about my mom's health. Right now, it's my mom's health. We can't get her from her bed to the bathroom. I get a 90-year-old man 700 miles by donkey or horse back to Jerusalem from Babylon. And so, no, Daniel didn't go. But um, he, he's, he's on the Tigris, and he's out in the, you know, by the river, and he's sitting there, and he's, he's praying 24 days of fasting and seeking the Lord. And in verse 5 it says, 
And I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose waist was girded with a gold euphaz. Now, we see the same exact description of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. And one of the things that John says is that he was girded about his waist with a golden band. And so here we have this thing, this, this, this appearance to Daniel, and, and the first thing he notices is this golden band. Now, we have here what a lot of people call um, and believe to be a Christophany. It's an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. And so Jesus was born in a baby, little baby Jesus, whatever it goes, you know, cute and mild. And, um, but that obviously wasn't his existence, right? Jesus existed. He, he, every, he, he created all things, and all things were created by him and through him. And, and so Jesus, pre um, our Old Testament, we see his appearances where he appears in the Old Testament. And, and for the most part, this is a pretty clear idea that this is Jesus with this description. Some don't agree. You can read it and you can decide. It, it, it's either, neither here nor there really whether you, you believe this to be Jesus or not. What happens is as you transition, by the time you get to verse 13, we're definitely not talking about Jesus anymore because the angel and the entity in verse 13 is being um, having a spiritual battle. And Jesus doesn't have spiritual battles. Jesus is the God of heaven. The battle of Armageddon is no battle. The battle of Armageddon is like Jesus is going to go, hmm, and that's it. Then all the armies of the Antichrist are going to die. There's no fight. There's no you know clashing swords between Jesus and the devil, Jesus and the Antichrist. One is God, and one is his created beings. That you know there's no competition. But we see we have this competition here, which means the the second part. But I, I think I can show you there's a transition place here where where this could very easily be Jesus, and then transition to the angel Gabriel. And so, um, but again. You guys decide for yourselves if this is Jesus or not. For reference, you should read the description of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1 um, because it's very similar. Not identical, but again, we do have, um, you know, where these guys are using terms and in, in the way they see it. And so um, in verse 6, he says, his, his body was like burl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like torches of fire his arms and his feet like burnished bronze in color, and the sound of his words like the voice of a multitude. You know, I heard about these, you know, Jesus is oftentimes um, in the Bible um, described as um, having eyes of fire. Now, I, I also something, and, and again, I'm running out of time, and I'm looking at my verses, I'm never going to get it done if I go into all this stuff, but I, I want to go into this one. This, this is a very unique, um, glorified, appearance of Jesus Christ. Um, this is in all of his glory. The thing was, Jesus was in all of his glory. He was glorified on the Mount of Transfiguration, remember? And James and John and Peter went up with him on the Mount of Transfiguration, and Jesus was transfigured, and Moses and Elijah were there, and, and Peter started opening his big mouth, and, and they were all there, and they seen Jesus. Then Jesus dies on a cross. He, he's in his glorified body. He tells Thomas to touch the, the scars that are in his hands. He appears in a room that the disciples have locked themselves in without going through any doors or anything. So he appears in the room. He has no limitations. He's in his glorified body. And, and, and the disciples are there and they see him. But, but yet, um, even though he's in his glorified body and he's, he's not in his flesh anymore, he's in spirit, it's not the same appearance of Jesus. And then when John, who was more familiar with Jesus in the flesh than any person ever in history before or after, John was there for all of it. John had his head on his on his lap. John was there on the Mount of Transfiguration. He was there at the Ascension. He was there on the beach. He was there in the room. 
Um, John was as close to Jesus. But when John sees, he says, when I turned and looked in Revelation 1, and I, and I beheld Jesus, he said, I fell on my face. Because it was this, this, this um, glorified Jesus that, that was in all of his glory, his heavenly glory, that he, he's masked. He must have masked, right? He must have not used or, or appeared that way to the two guys on the road to Emmaus. Jesus appeared to more than 500 people post-resurrection, um, right? And he didn't freak them out. And they didn't all fall on their face when they seen him. But he was already in a glorified body. So not that there's, you know, how we quantify like multiple glorified bodies, but this is Jesus in all of his glory. And that's what Daniel is seeing. That's what John saw. And the reaction is always the same. The reaction is the, the people fall on their face in awe. You know, when John sees him and John falls on his face, such a powerful picture in Revelation 1. Because, again, John is so familiar with Jesus. And then for him to see him in all of his glory, and he just, oh, he just falls on his face. You know, I tease right there, right? And same thing here with, with Daniel. We're going to read here in a second, if I ever get back to reading it, that Daniel is going to have the same reaction. He's going to fall on his face. You know, and again, like, how many of you guys have ever used the term, like, oh, I'm going to pick a bone with God when I get upstairs. I'm going to ask him about that. You know, I, I, I got a couple things I've thought over the years, like mosquitoes, tomatoes. Can't figure it out. You know, it's evil, right? Why would God allow it? But, but, but when you get to heaven, you know, and the, the song I can only imagine, it's, it's a great song, and it was moved by the Holy Spirit. But I can imagine what you're going to do. It ain't going to be any of those things. You're going to fall on your face before, before the God of heaven when you see him because of his all. That's all. You're not going to know what to do. Oh, that's it. You're going to fall on your face. And you're not going to be picking a bone with anybody. You know, i got a bone to pick with a good old boy upstairs. You better pray for that guy's salvation because if you call him the good old boy upstairs, I think my mic just died. My battery's just died. Am I back? All right. Um, all right. So here, let's see what happens. Okay, the eyes, the eyes. We want to talk about the eyes too. So his eyes. Check this scene out. Um, the the bema seat of Christ. You guys familiar with the concept? There's two major judgments in the New Testament you should be familiar with. The bema seat of Christ and the great white throne judgment. None of us will be at the great white throne judgment. You don't need to worry about it. 100% of the people at the great white throne judgment, they're going to hell. You're not going to be there. If you know Jesus. Um, if you're born again. If you love God and are called according to his purpose. Um, the Bema Seat Judgment is a place where our works will be tried. And it says they'll be tried as with fire. And that everything that we've done, um, um, our motives are what's tried in this, in this thing, right? Because no matter how much you gave or how much you served, it's, how you, it's the motive behind it. You, know, you could have gave a lot with the wrong motive. You could have gave a little like the, like the widow's two mites with the right motive. And there's great reward. So it says everything that is wood, hay, and stubble is burned up. And everything that is precious jewels is your reward on the other end. And so, you know, I've always, you've always kind of teased that the, the Bema seat judgment of Christ is like this conveyor belt, you know, and you place all your goods on one side and it goes through the fire and you stand on the other side of the conveyor belt and, you know, like no whammies, no whammies, big bucks, big bucks. And you hope that all your stuff that's coming through the fire turns into jewels on the other side and doesn't get burned up. But um, I heard a pastor suggest that the Bema seat judgment happens through Jesus' eyes of fire. That's cool, right? Like Jesus just looking at you just immediately just separates what's, what's pure in your heart and what's real and what's not. And, and the Bema seat judgment and what comes out after the eyes of fire of Jesus. And really just, I mean, for all of us, you know, the, the, the moment of looking into Jesus' eyes. Like that's eternity. That's, that's what we long for. That, that moment. For the first time, 
eyes are going to look back at you that have absolutely zero regret, total love, nothing negative for the first time. The only eyes that could ever do that to you, no matter how much your mama loves you, she still has a little inkling of, I wish you would have took out the trash that day. I wish you would have done this. Some kind of disappointment in her heart that, that just is not 100% pure. And when you see the eyes of Jesus for the first time, for the first time you'll see really the eyes of love. All right, so the eyes of the fire, kind of cool with Jesus. And then he says in verse 7, And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. The men who were with me um, saw the vision, or did not see the vision, but a great terror fell on them, and so they fled. And so Daniel was with a group of people, 90 years old. I'm sure he didn't travel by himself, working for the king. Um, and the other guys, some fear hit their heart, and they took off. And Daniel looks around, he sees all these guys running, and then he sees this vision, and they weren't there for it. They didn't see it. Then he saw it, this vision of Jesus. And therefore, I was left alone, in verse 8, when I saw the great vision, with no strength remained in me, for my vigor was turned into frailty in me, and I, and I refrained, retained no strength. Normally, when I can't read, I blame it on my glasses or the lighting or something. Oh, I can't read my, you know, I got no excuse today. Verse 9 says, Yet I heard the sound of his words, and while I heard the sound of his words, I was in a deep sleep, I missed eight, didn't I? Therefore I was left alone, I am part of it. And I saw a great vision, and no strength remained in me, for my vigor was turned into frailty in me, and I, refer- and I retained no strength. It zapped his strength. Again, he's falling on his face. And yet I heard the sound of his words, and while I heard the sound of his words, I was in a deep sleep on my face, with my face to the ground. And so where does Daniel end up in the presence of Jesus? The same exact place that John did in Revelation chapter 1, on his face, before Jesus on the ground. And, um, and so, same thing. Well, you know, the Bible says that you and I, we don't have the luxury of comparing ourselves to other humans when, when we're doing a, am I a good person test. Well, I'm better than them because you can always find somebody you're better than. The litmus test, the Bible says, is Jesus. So you got to look at Jesus and you get to, get to decide whether you're a good person or not based on Jesus and who he was. And, you know, we don't get to look across the aisle and and be better than somebody else. And so, and, and always, again, the reaction when we do see Jesus clearly in our prayers, in our lives, in our devotions, our, our, our reaction, if it's, if, it's, if it's genuine, is that we see our own frailty. We don't think we're great and good all of a sudden. All of a sudden, we're like Isaiah when he saw the Lord. Woe is me. You know, I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm undone. And, and that's usually our response when we see the Lord. And so Daniel has that response. Um, so again, that... that that to me is Jesus. That's a Christophany. When you get to verse 10, it says, suddenly a hand touched me. Now, this hand that's going to touch him, if you just kind of skipped it, it, it would feel like it's the same thing in the vision that he just read. But there is a gap. There's a place there. As he says, he's sleeping. But what the other thing it says is that, um, look at the end of verse 9. I was, um, while I heard the sound of his words, I was in a deep sleep on my face. You know, that verse encourages me. When I'm preaching and people are sleeping. I just, Daniel heard the voice while he was sleeping. I'm like, they're sleeping. I just keep preaching at them, you know. And you, ever see the, you see the guy, he's like, he's sleeping. He's standing up. And, you know, the first thing you do is you look down at your Bible. Like, you're looking at your Bible. And he looks at his Bible and shake his head and slowly look up. And then back out again. I see it all. I, it doesn't bother me. I've been in a million church services. I fell asleep. And I, I don't matter how good or bad the sermon is sometimes. Like, you just... Just can't do it. I get it, you know. I don't trip. I don't get mad at you guys if you fall asleep. You need a nap. God bless you. Take a nap. I'm cool. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're here. Honestly, I'm glad you're here. Take a nap if you need a nap. It don't bother me at all. 
like I said, it's, this is not my first rodeo. I've been sitting where you guys are a million times. And um, All right, so chapter 10, verse 10. Suddenly a hand touched me, which made me tremble on my knees and the palms of my hands. And so now he's on his hands and knees, and he said to me, small h, O Daniel, man greatly beloved. Twice Daniel is called greatly beloved. Um, Daniel is one of the distinctions in the Bible that greatly beloved of God. Who was the other one? Several, like D- David had a really cool place. Um, John the Apostle was called the beloved disciple. We know that because who told us that John was the beloved disciple? John told us, right? Yeah. So Moses, everyone had their, their, their distinctions. David had a cool distinction. Moses had a cool distinction. Um, but the, the beloved, Daniel stands out. John stands out. And twice here it's going to say that he's greatly beloved. But again, you know, in this whole scenario, right, like, this is, what I, this is kind of what I've been sharing with you guys, too, like the last Sunday and today. Like, in this whole emotion of all this, what, what's important to God? What's the first message he wants to tell Daniel, that he wants to tell you and me in any situation? And what is the message that we need to motivate us to do the hard work? I love you. I sincerely love you. And that's what he does. The angel touches Daniel and he says, hey, you are loved. You are greatly loved. And that's the motivation that's going to go into the rest of this. And 90 years old, him to keep fighting, him to keep getting into these 24-day spiritual battles that he just came out of. And it's going to get into some crazier battles as we keep going. I better stop. It's 829. I thought there's no way I won't finish 10 tonight. But hey, read ahead and confuse yourselves and figure it out. And then next week, we'll pick it up in 10 next week. I could, you guys, it's 829. That's a good breaking point. If I don't stop now, I'll end up going another 15 minutes. I'm going to make a note in my Bible where we left off. Hey, uh, the prayers for my mom are working. You guys are awesome. You guys have been praying for my mom, and she's been having some great days, so I appreciate all your prayers. Keep praying. Um, I'm definitely going to be here Sunday to preach uh, Revelation 7 on Sunday. Um, Then by next Wednesday, we're still day-to-day of whether I need to, you know, jump on the next plane and get down there or not, but... um, there's a chance Lydia will be able to go with me next week, and we're going to drive down. And so um, we're, we're kind of day-to-day right now, but I'll definitely be here Sunday for Daniel 7. Ladies, have a wonderful time at the retreat this weekend, and enjoy yourselves. Go get spiritual and get some Jesus. Get right with Jesus. All right. I'm going to be careful. I'll stop. i got to get some comments I can make for you ladies going to women's retreat, but I'll be good. I'll be good, Daddy. I'll be good. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. Let's stand together. Father God, we come before you. We thank you, Lord Jesus, so much for this day, God. And Lord, we love you and we praise you, God. We ask your blessing, Lord Jesus, over this night, over our study. And Lord, we, we just ask, Father, that we, we would relationally remove those things in our lives that, that are keeping us from Jesus, that are Lord, blocking our walk from you, Lord, whatever the sins and the weights are that you've been convicting us of, that we'd remove those things. And Lord, that we would hear from you, God, that you love us because, Lord, you love us like you love Daniel. And you greatly love us. You can't love us anymore or any less. The great love of God is just a motivator. And Lord, that we would know your love, and that we'd be motivated by the love of God, and that we would desire just to go out and see other people know the love of God and know the Jesus we know. And Lord, our hearts break as we watch our, our neighbors and, and those that are, that are just bound in religion. And Lord, our overwhelming thought is, Lord, if they just knew the Jesus we knew, that they, they'd be set free. And so God, help us to just have passion and compassion and love and um, Lord, that we, we would um, have opportunity, God, to, to witness and share our faith and that you bring people into our lives, God, that we could share with them the love of Jesus. Lord, we pray for the Harvest Crusade, this co- festival that's coming up. 
and that we could have just a great Bible land here and, and see many people um, be blessed. And, and Lord, that those there'd be some that would come to Christ even, Lord. And we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. I bless you guys. Have a great night.